Greetings, folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, episode 14. I've been wrestling with this episode. This is, I think, my third attempt to try doing a follow-up to the last episode that I released a few weeks ago now, as I'd committed to doing something a little less political, maybe a little more personal. So I started doing an episode on secular grieving, which I want to pursue at some point in the future, but couldn't really finish it up, couldn't really follow it through. So then I tried doing an episode, uh, a more mythologically rooted episode, on my favorite goddess, Inanna, and one of her lovely hymns. But I couldn't do that either. I couldn't, couldn't follow that through. I couldn't finish it. And I've been wondering why. And it occurred to me that I, as much as I would like to delve into more personal and, and mythological concerns and get away from angry politics for a while, with the uh, American election now staring us in the face, that would seem too much like a retreat from reality, and I, I can't do that. As much as I want to, I can't. So it's Saturday night, October 31st, Halloween, a time when once my commitments to my daughter have been met, I usually, and by usually I mean always, practice a private ritual commemorating my father's birthday, which happens to be today. I won't get into the details of what the ritual is. Were he alive, he would have been Oh, 86 today, I guess. But uh, I can't do that either. Because even though I'm only a small voice, the smallest of small voices, if my listener numbers are any indication, there's too much at stake right now for even the smallest of voices not to be speaking. And speaking honestly. In a few days, the lunatic country south of the border is going to decide, or have decided for it, whether it will continue to gasp and wheeze along as the faltering shadow of a once admirable republic or or collapse completely into the fascist dystopia that has been prepared for it over the last presidential term and if that happens i am genuinely afraid not just for the many people i know and love who live on that side of the border but for everybody and yes, there is some self-interest here. I have no desire for my country to play Austria to Trump's Germany. And I'll do everything I can to prevent that. So what are we going to talk about today? What, what little tidbit might I have to contribute? Well, it's been a while since I talked about Confucianism as a political philosophy or Confucianism at all. At all. But as I look at what's going on, not just in the United States, but in the Western world generally, the political and economic forces that seem to be pushing us away from genuine empathy, from concern for the well-being of others outside our immediate circle, I find that a more communitarian political philosophy might have something to offer, in fact does have something to offer us, and something that I think our political discourse used to have, but has lost something that I've watched slip away over my lifetime out of our political discourse, and that I very much want us to find again. And this isn't a matter of make politics great again. It's just a matter of make politics work again. But as, as the right becomes more entrenched, more strident, questions of quality of life not measured by economics, questions of basic human well-being, seem to be lacking. The right, the far right, does tend to see empathy as a weakness. I spend time lurking on far-right websites sometimes, and one sentiment that I encounter a fair bit is the notion that the, the left, the progressives, are weak because we take emotion into consideration in our politics, whereas politics ought to be coldly rational. As if politics were anything other than a mechanism for human beings to figure out how to run their societies. And human beings are not coldly rational, at least fully realized human beings are not. And a system that leaves out, a system that doesn't recognize human nature in its completion, is necessarily going to produce a society of truncated human beings, incomplete human beings. But here, this is just me. I think I'm going to read you a little bit of Mencius, my favorite philosopher, it turns out. And 
after Confucius, the most important philosopher in the Confucian tradition. And we'll see what he has to say. And I don't have a script for this. This is even less planned than what I usually do. So I don't know where it's going to go, how long it's going to be, how many books I'm going to read to you from. And I may even read you things I've read you before in past episodes, because, of course, I did spend some time with Confucianism back in the early summer. But in any case, give a listen to this and see what you think. It's probably the most important passage in Mencius' text, and one of the most important passages in all of Chinese philosophy, and it has a lot to say to us right now. This is passage 2a6 in Mencius' text, and it goes like this. And I should say Mengzi because that, of course, is a Chinese name. Mengzi said, All humans have hearts that are not unfeeling toward others. The former kings had hearts that were not unfeeling toward others, so they had governments that were not unfeeling toward others. If one puts into practice a government that is not unfeeling toward others by means of a heart that is not unfeeling toward others, bringing order to the whole world is in the palm of your hand. The reason why I say that all humans have hearts that are not unfeeling toward others is this. Suppose somebody suddenly saw a child about to fall into a well. Anyone in such a situation would have a feeling of alarm and compassion. Not because one sought to get in good with the child's parents, not because one wanted fame among one's neighbors and friends, and not because one would dislike the sound of the child's cries. From this, we can see that if one is without a feeling of compassion, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of disdain, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of deference, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of approval and disapproval, one is not human. The feeling of compassion is the sprout of benevolence. The feeling of disdain is the sprout of righteousness. The feeling of deference is the sprout of propriety. The feeling of approval and disapproval is the sprout of wisdom. People's having these four sprouts is like their having four limbs. To have these four sprouts, yet to claim that one is incapable of virtue, is to steal from oneself. To say that one's ruler is incapable is to steal from one's ruler. In general, having these four sprouts within oneself, if one knows to fill them all out, it will be like a fire starting up, a spring breaking through. If one can merely fill them out, they will be sufficient to care for all within the four seas. If one merely fails to fill them out, they will be insufficient to serve one's parents. So, why this passage? Why now? Well, the beginning is interesting, isn't it? All humans have hearts that are not unfeeling toward others. Then he goes on to discuss the implementation of policies that are not unfeeling toward others. But I'd like to take a look at that. It's phrased in the negative, isn't it? And what he doesn't say here is just as important as what he does, I think. To be not unfeeling toward others isn't exactly the same as to be actively sympathetic to them. To be not unfeeling toward others is a very low bar. He's not even speaking of the presence of care, so much as just the absence of indifference. And he seems to be making the argument that if one simply begins from a position of not being indifferent to others, then one will be capable of implementing policies that suitably recognize at least basic human needs. And I bring this up largely because, of course, the policies we've seen over the last few years have been not only actively unfeeling, but in many cases, I believe, actively malicious. Uh, the first law I remember Trump enacting and I'm not exaggerating on this. This is the very first thing I remember him doing, and it was within days of his assuming uh, his position in the White House, was making it legal for, quote, hunters, unquote, to shoot hibernating bears in their lairs. And that told me most of what I wanted to know about how he was going to govern, the kind of president he was going to be, the kind of human being he is. The only thing I missed, of course, was how fully that bad nature would be fleshed out and revealed in just a few years. Virtually every policy enacted in the last four years has been to the detriment of the neediest people in the country and the benefit of the richest. Environmental protections have been clawed back to the point that 
industrial polluters are now free to poison water and poison air to a degree that had not been the case, honestly, since the 1970s. So to say that the current administration has hearts that are unfeeling toward others is to put it charitably. I cannot see their policies making any sense in the absence of malice, in the absence of active ill will. But the main reason I focus on this passage is, of course, the thought experiment, the imagining of the child about to fall into a well. And of course, of course, there are limits to any thought experiment. No thought experiment can ever be a slam dunk, period. But it does, I think, allow for a certain insight into human nature and an important discussion about human nature to emerge. The words here are very carefully chosen. Mengsi speaks of the initial impulse of alarm and compassion. And this is why the child being on the point of falling into the well is so important. There's no time for calculation. He presents a situation in which our calculations of self-interest don't have time to be run. So our impulse here is pre-calculative. It's something about our nature. That is, in this thought experiment, self-interest is after the fact. I'm not saying it isn't present in the, way, in, in the way such a situation might play out, but that initial impulse to help a child in immediate and lethal danger is pre-calculative. It's part of who we are. Now, I might add that while many thought experiments go very wide of the mark where human nature is concerned, I'm thinking of every single state of nature argument coming out of the Enlightenment, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, the notion of a person alone being in a state of nature, which is patently absurd, quite frankly, we're communal by nature. There's nothing less natural to a human being than being alone, but that's a rant for another day. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll come back to it today. Who knows? I don't know what I'm doing. In any case, what follows is a really nice articulation of Mencius's view of human nature, his actual definition of what it means to be human. That is, to be human is not merely biological. It involves impulses as well. It involves character. And to be completely lacking in compassion, for instance, is to not be fully human. Now, fair enough. I'm not going to argue with him on that one. It certainly is to be lacking the full human repertoire of capacities. In modern parlance, we call a person who is completely lacking in compassion, who has no capacity for empathy, a sociopath. So what Mencius is saying translates fairly well into a modern and fairly well-attested view of human nature. And by well-attested, what I mean is that the study of empathy in the lab is actually fairly well-established. There are certain little bits of your brain, they're called mirror neurons, that function, that fire, when you see someone else suffering. And what these do is that they cause the parts of your brain that correspond to the parts of the person's brain whom you're seeing to light up as if you were similarly in pain. If you see a hammer descending rapidly on my hand and see that hammer impact my hand, most of you are going to flinch. That's your mirror neurons working. That's the pain center in your brain responding to the pain that I actually feel. That is, we literally do feel each other's pain. That's what empathy is, and that's not an abstraction. It's an observed reality. The sociopath doesn't have that. The sociopath is literally unfeeling toward others. So what Mencius is saying is, if you're a sociopath, you're not fully human. Well, I, I buy that. You may be biologically human. But psychologically, you are not. Well, what happens when you have a government run by sociopaths? And there is little, little doubt that Donald Trump is a sociopath. And by little doubt, I mean no doubt whatsoever. I've read too many articles by too many psychologists who have commented informally on his policies and on his behaviors and on his history over the course of his life, not to find their testimony, not to find their arguments compelling. And I'll, I'll take this beyond Trump. Any argument that policy, that government, 
should not take empathy into account, or at least that it shouldn't take compassion into account, is pretty much by definition sociopathic. And sorry, if if your political leanings are such that you think empathy has no place in politics, you are functioning as a sociopath. You are thinking as an incomplete human being. And I'm tired of government by incomplete human beings. I'm tired, I'm tired of the celebration of heartlessness as if that were strength, as if, as if it didn't take more strength to feel and carry on. But of course, Mencius doesn't go so far as to say that we are virtuous by nature. We have those impulses toward, for example, compassion. But he follows up his little thought experiment by mentioning the importance of filling them out, that is, of developing, of cultivating that which is innate to us. And some of us will succeed in cultivating that, and some of us will fail in cultivating that. Some of us will be brought up in environments that encourage cultivating our natural capacities, and some of us will be brought up in environments that virtually blight the cultivation of such capacities. This matters too. And this matters in politics. It matters in terms of the choices any given individual will be encouraged or steered toward making. And it matters in terms of what groups or categories of people will be, will have that cultivation of their natural capacities fostered or frustrated or downright actively prevented. Well, Let's look at the individual level first, and to do that, maybe I'd like to look at a new passage. So, let's take a look at Book 2a, Section 7, Paragraph 1. Mengzi said, Is the arrow maker less benevolent than the armor maker? Yet the arrow maker only fears that he may not harm people. The armor maker only fears that he may harm people. The shaman healer and the coffin maker are the same way, respectively. Hence, One may not fail to be careful about one's choice of craft. I love that. What you choose to do for a living, what you choose to do with your life, determines not just your livelihood, but how you see other people. The arrow maker, the person in the arms industry, sees people as things to be killed. He fears failing to develop something that will kill enough people. The healer, so the doctor, the physician, fears not saving enough people. But for the coffin maker, dead people are good for business. Well, what we have in the U.S. right now is, as far as I'm concerned, government by arrow makers and coffin makers. And meanwhile, the physicians, the medical profession, are being dismissed. And the coffins are being filled, 230,000 of them and counting. But that's not the only reason I chose to look at this particular passage. Since I've grown up, so this is a long time ago, because dudes, I am not young. I can recall people saying that government should be run like a business. What the hell does that mean? Government should be run like a business. Because what do we teach in business? What, what is business about? It's about making money. Yeah, great. Getting as much as you can from other people while giving as little as possible in return. At least that's the way Trump does it. How many creditors, how many contractors has he left high and dry after they gave him everything he wanted? That's what is squatting in the White House right now. What he chose to do for a living conditioned the way he saw people. And the way he sees people is as entities to have things taken from them. That's Trump's version of business. It's not the only possible version of business. I'm not anti-capitalist. I think there's a place for capitalism of a sort. And again, as for the choice of, as for the choice of occupation, I can speak to this from some personal experience as well. This is not just abstract. And Confucianism as a whole, by the way, is a very concrete hands-on philosophy. My occupation is teaching. And I find that the more time I spend in this occupation, which I've been doing, well, for about 28 years, the more I find that when I see other people, when I meet someone else, the first question in my mind, or one of the first questions in my mind is, do I have anything 
that will enrich the texture of this person's mind? Do I have anything that will contribute to this person's life? Not in a material way, but in a more substantial way. What do I have to offer another person's psyche? Now, I'm not saying I should be in charge of any country. <laughs> that would be a fucking disaster. But do we really need people whose first impulse in every situation is to take? Because that is not public service. Government is supposed to be public service. Government in a democracy is, by definition, public service. And <laughs> we need to have our public servants back. But that wasn't where I was intending to go, if I was intending anything at all. Instead, let's go to Ox Mountain. Mengzi said, The trees of Ox Mountain were once beautiful, but because it bordered on a large state, hatchets and axes besieged it. Could it remain verdant? Due to the respite it got during the day or night, and the moisture of rain and dew, there were sprouts and shoots growing there, but oxen and sheep came and grazed on them, hence it was as if it were barren. Seeing it barren, people believed that there had never been any timber there, but could this be the nature of the mountain? When we consider what is present in people, could they truly lack the hearts of benevolence and righteousness? The way that they discard their genuine hearts is like the hatchets and axes in relation to the trees. With them besieging it day by day, can it remain beautiful? With the respite it gets during day or night, and the restorative effects of its morning chi, their likes and dislikes are sometimes close to those of others, but what they do during the day fetters and destroys it. If the fettering is repeated, then the evening chi is insufficient to preserve it. If the evening chi is insufficient to preserve it, then one is not far from an animal. Others see that he is an animal and think that there was never any capacity there, but is this what a human is like inherently? And by the way, that is passage 6a8. Okay, what do we say about this one? And what has it got to do with, with right now? And I seem to recall actually talking about this passage with you folks before. So please forgive me if I'm being a little repetitive. I think the context is different and that matters. What is Ox Mountain? Well, it's a place that was alive until it was set upon by people hungry to take everything they could from it while giving nothing back. And this is a good reading for, of course, environmental ethics, but that's not why I'm talking about it right now. It's also a good reading for a human being, and that, I think, is what Mencius actually means here. A social system that takes from its people, that blights their capacity to cultivate themselves, effectively bestializes them. It reduces a human. It reduces a person or it is capable of reducing a person to little more than a beast. If people are faced with the choice every day, or even ever, of, for example, violating their ethics and feeding their children, or staying true to their ethics and watching the children starve, well, any decent parent is going to make sure their children eat even if it means breaking the law. Any decent human being will break the law in that case. Or to look at it another way, what do we do if our children are raised in a society that does not offer them not only the opportunity, but even the idea that they might fulfill the promise of their full humanity? What do we do? What do our children do if they are raised in a society that teaches them they are nothing more than cogs, nothing more than economic functions, hoping for scraps, while others increasingly get rich off of their work. How can we allow that? While someone, for example, like Jeff Bezos gets richer by the millions of dollars every single day, that this economically devastating pandemic goes on, how can we conscionably consider electing people who serve the interests of the rich? How can we do that? How dare we do that? Because in doing that, we're giving, we're giving the rich permission to consume the humanity 
of our children. And how much misery, how much minimum wage labor, how much anxiety, wondering whether the bills can be paid, whether the food can be bought, whether there are going to be many, any medical emergencies coming out that people can't afford, how to afford kids' clothing for school, how to buy books, how to buy shoes, how much of that shines out from the varnish of Jeff Bezos's yacht or from the gold that lines the walls in Donald Trump's private suite. And yes, I was looking at a photograph of that just the other day. And if it sounds like I'm questioning the legitimacy of the current regime, well, let's say for the sake of discussion that I am. And let's also have a couple of definitions on the table. One, a regime is not the same as an administration. That is, we have the American regime currently presided over by the Trump administration. The regime is the overall organization, both political and bureaucratic, that directs the apparatus of the state. The administration is the particular body of particular people who oversee the regime at a given point in time. So what I seem to be doing, and this is not what I set out to do, is not just questioning the administration, but questioning the regime itself, questioning the American regime. And I think there are grounds in Mencius for exactly such a questioning, for looking at the way the system works, not just looking at the current administration, which is a passing thing, but looking at the thing itself and seeing how it works and evaluating its legitimacy. So I think for the last part of this little talk, what I'd like to do is present a Confucian theory of political legitimacy and apply it to the U.S. as it stands at the moment. The term that the Confucian tradition generally uses for political legitimacy is the mandate of heaven. This also needs to be defined because it's not what it sounds like to Western ears. It is, in fact, like virtually all Chinese philosophy, deeply humanist in its orientation. And to keep things simple and save a bit of time, because technically I should be recording a lecture right now for my job, it's Sunday afternoon of November 1st, and that is generally how I spend my Sunday afternoons these days. What I think I will do is insert a little excerpt from a lecture I recently recorded introducing one of my classes to exactly this idea in our study of Mencius there. So, welcome to my virtual classroom. The understandings of both humanism and heaven, Tian, that emerge under the Zhou are quite different from their most well-known Western counterparts. The humanism underlying virtually all Chinese philosophy entails a unity of earth and heaven, both of which are governed by natural laws. That is, heaven is simply another facet of the cosmos that all living things inhabit, not a transcendent state of being. The cosmos is, in other words, in principle knowable through human mechanisms of knowledge. More importantly, heaven, as it gradually came to be understood, has no conscious volition and is not guided by a supreme being, or in fact a being of any kind. There is no supreme God, and thus no divine will. And yet heaven exerts an influence on human affairs, largely through the placement and removal of its mandate. A rough understanding of this notion might go something as follows. Heaven, earth, and human nature are all rational and interconnected. Ethics are also rational and thus also connected to heaven and earth. Proper ethical behavior is thus a proper alignment of oneself with the principles that govern heaven, earth, and human nature. Political legitimacy rests in exactly such an alignment. Therefore, an unethical political regime has no legitimacy and can be overthrown if it fails after repeated and principled remonstrations to correct its ethical vices. The mandate of heaven arises then not as a function of supernatural will, but rather as a natural and thus rational consequence of human ethical conduct, an effect of the continuity of heaven and earth. If, for example, a dynasty becomes corrupt and the corruption is not corrected over a few generations, the dynasty loses the mandate of heaven, opening the door for another dynasty with a better, more ethical vision to step into the moral vacuum and, as the new bearers of the mandate, overthrow the failing regime without incurring the moral costs of treason or regicide. Meanwhile, the emperor, 
as bearer of the mandate and personal link between heaven and earth, comes to be known as the son of heaven. And the symbol for king, Wang, is very interesting in this context. It consists of three horizontal lines, representing heaven at the top, humanity in the middle, and earth on the bottom, and one vertical line standing for the king who unites all three. And there, you've just learned your first Chinese character. And now we merge back into real time. Of course, there are many passages in Mencius which discuss the mandate of heaven. I'd like to focus on one right now, and that is section 5A5. It goes something like this. Wan Jiang said, Is it the case that Yao gave the world to Shun? Mencius said, It is not. The Son of Heaven cannot give the world to another person. Wan Jiang asked, In that case, when Shun had the world, who gave it to him? Mengzi said, Heaven gave it to him. Wan Jiang said, When Heaven gave it to him, did it openly decree it? Mengzi said, It did not. Heaven does not speak, but simply reveals the mandate through actions and affairs. Wan Jiang asked, How does it reveal it through actions and affairs? Mengzi replied, The Son of Heaven can present a person to Heaven, but he cannot make Heaven give him the world. The various lords can present a person to the Son of Heaven, but they cannot make him give the person a state. A chief counselor can present a person to one of the various lords, but he cannot make the lord appoint that person chief counselor. Formerly, Emperor Yao presented Shun to Heaven, and Heaven accepted him. He made him known to the people, and the people accepted him. Hence, I say that Heaven does not speak, but simply reveals the mandate through actions and affairs. Wan Zhang continued, May I ask how he recommended him to heaven and heaven accepted him? How he presented him to the people and the people accepted him? Mengzi replied, Yao put Shun in charge of the ritual sacrifices and the various spirits were pleased with him. This was heaven accepting him. He put Shun in charge of affairs and the affairs were well ordered and the people were at ease with him. This was the people accepting him. Heaven gave it to him and the people gave it to him. Hence, I say, the Son of Heaven cannot give the world to another person. Shun was Prime Minister to Yao for twenty-eight years. This is not the doing of a human, it is due to Heaven. After Yao passed away, when the three-year mourning period had been completed, Shun deferred to the son of Yao, going far off to the south of Nanhe. But the various lords and those with official business went to Shun instead of to the son of Yao. Those with cases to try went to Shun instead of to the son of Yao. Singers sang the praises of Shun instead of the son of Yao, hence I say it is due to heaven. It was only after these things that Shun returned to the central states and assumed the position of the son of heaven. Had he simply occupied the palace of Yao and exiled the son of Yao, this would have been a usurpation, not heaven giving it to him. The great announcement says, Heaven sees as my people see. Heaven hears as my people hear. This expresses what I mean. Or, to put it another way, we can take a look at section 1A6, which is a little shorter and goes like this. Mengzi had an audience with King Xiang of Liang. When Mengzi left, he said to some others, When I looked up at him, he did not seem like a ruler of people. When I approached him, I did not see anything awe-inspiring in him. He simply blurted out, How can the world be pacified? I responded, It can be pacified by being unified. The king asked, Who can unify it? I replied, one who does not have a taste for killing people can unify it. The king asked, who can give it to him? I replied, no one in the world will fail to give it to him. Does your majesty know about sprouts? During the dry period of the summer months, the sprouts shrivel. But when heaven abundantly makes clouds and copiously sends down rain, then the sprouts vigorously rise up. If it is like this, who can forbid it? But nowadays, there are none among those who shepherd the people who do not have a taste for killing people. If there were one who did not have a taste for killing people, the people of the world would crane their necks to look for him. If it were genuinely like this, the people would turn to him like water flowing down, copiously. Who would be able to forbid it? Oh, so what does all of this have to do with political legitimacy? Well, in the first passage, we see an argument that Mencius makes elsewhere in the text as well. And that is that the will and condition of the people is a reasonable indicator of the disposition of heaven. That is, heaven revealing itself in affairs 
means that you can take a look and see whether the state is well run, whether the people are satisfied with the way the state is being run, and use that to judge whether the regime possesses the mandate of heaven. In that sense, heaven here functions almost as a nice shorthand for cause and effect, an idea that a slightly later Confucian philosopher, Shun Tzu, makes pretty explicit, actually, in his treatise on heaven. Although sovereignty rests with heaven in this model, an indication of whether sovereignty, or an indication, rather, of political legitimacy, is always the condition and disposition of the people. And one of the things, one of the reasons why Shun is seen as particularly admirable in this case is that he got the hell out of the way and basically let the people's decision be his decision. He didn't hunker down in the palace trying to maintain power, even though he was the one whom Yao wanted to inherit. He got out of the way and let heaven and the people reveal what they wanted. And then he simply did that. He did not act, in other words, as if he were entitled to be emperor, because no one is entitled to be emperor. No one is entitled to be a head of state. The function of the king as son of heaven is to guarantee the rational and humane functioning of the state. That's pretty much it. And as for the second passage, what we have here is an evaluation of a particular holder of the office, of a particular king and contemporary of Mencius, so a king of one of the warring states. And this king, Xiang, is interested only in power, only in having and maintaining power. And Mencius sizes him up and finds him wanting, particularly because he's warlike. He's, as Mencius says, fond of killing. Whereas a legitimate ruler, a legitimate leader, establishes and maintains peace. And as Mengzi points out, you make things peaceful by not killing people, and also by presiding over an administration whose agenda is not division, but unity. That is, the state stands through unity, it falls through division. Mencius knows this. Anyone who studies politics knows this. Profound division can often spell the end of a regime, the end of a state, because it's an indicator of deep weakness. And certainly in my life, probably in the life of anyone, there's never been an administration that sowed division so pervasively as the current one. That said, and this is often being pointed out, so it's by no means new to me, Trump and Trumpism is an outgrowth, a conclusion, a symptom of a deeper underlying ailment in American society. And I think much of that ailment actually has to do with a problem in the regime itself. Now, I should probably clarify myself a little further, and that is, although there has on paper been a consistent regime in the U.S., for its entire history as a country, I tend to see certain decisions, certain legal decisions largely, as redefining the regime sufficiently to consider a new regime having begun. An obvious one of these would be the 13th Amendment, the abolition of slavery. Another would be the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. These were transformative amendments that not only expanded the franchise, but qualitatively changed the face of the electorate, and therefore qualitatively changed the face of the state. So these, I think, are qualitative changes in the regime itself. Now, there have been a number of these. I'm not going to try to name all of them. And they're not all constitutional amendments. The one that I'm most concerned with right now is the Citizens United decision by the American Supreme Court which allowed previously restricted amounts of money to flow in to the political process under the legal fiction of money being speech. This has so corrupted the American regime, so taken the founding democratic principles out 
of that facade of democracy and replaced them with a system by which those with the most wealth can shamelessly and openly buy their way into power. And this is not unique to the Republican Party. So the regime that I'm referring to is not the whole historic legacy of American democracy. It's the regime as it is currently constructed. And of course, the United States is teetering on yet another regime change. Because it is obvious from his behavior, from his explicit intention of trying to make sure as few votes as possible are counted, that Donald Trump does not want to live even in a shadow of a democracy, even in the kind of zombie democracy that the United States has become. He quipped not that long ago that he would simply prefer not to count the votes at all, not to have the vote, and that that would guarantee a peaceful transfer of power because there would be continuity. And, well, anybody wondering about what that regime that he has in mind might look like there are more examples than I can count or name. The one at the tip of my tongue right now is Kyle Rittenhouse, who, when Trump was challenged on and challenged to condemn Rittenhouse, who had murdered two people with a firearm he was not legally entitled to be carrying, and having crossed state lines to do so, spoke in clear sympathy with that particular terrorist over the peaceful demonstrators who had been murdered. And many on the far right have taken the same position. These are not people who want to live in a free country. These are not people who want to live in a country where the right to peaceful protest guaranteed under the First Amendment is respected. And when asked to condemn a white terrorist organization, Trump instructs them to stand down and stand by, well, we're going to see what they're standing by for on Tuesday, aren't we? Expect guns near polling stations. Expect intimidation near polling stations, particularly those stations in districts with large populations of people likely to be voting Democratic. That is, we are looking at 1933. Whether it comes off that way or not is still anybody's guess. I am not optimistic. I have no doubt where the popular vote will go, but as has been pointed out by many people before me, the mechanisms of election theft are already in place, and Trump has no intention of going peacefully. But, well, what do you do with a regime that no longer holds the mandate of heaven? What do you do with a regime that is corrupt, unethical, and no longer working toward the well-being of the people of the state as a whole. A regime that sows dissent and division, that is openly racist, openly sexist, openly homophobic, and deeply infected with the virus of religious nationalism. Well, maybe our friend Mencius has something to say about that too. Let's see. Section 1b8 reads as follows. And in this one, Mengzi is talking with King Xuan of Qi. Xuan is another one of the tyrannically inclined kings, very big on law and order, not so good on looking after his people's interests. And here's that conversation. It's short. King Xuan of Qi asked, Is it the case that Tang banished Jie and Wu struck down tyrant Zhou when Tang and Wu were their subjects? And to be clear here, what he's talking about is the founding members of incoming dynasties tossing out the last members of the outgoing dynasties who had become irredeemably corrupt. Mengzi replied, that is what has been passed down in ancient texts. The king said, is it acceptable for subjects to assassinate their rulers? Mengzi said, one who mutilates benevolence should be called a mutilator one who mutilates righteousness, should be called a crippler. A crippler and a mutilator is called a mere fellow. I have indeed heard of the execution of this one fellow, Joe, but I have not heard of it as the assassination of one's ruler. And now the American populace is faced with the choice of what to do with this mutilator of benevolence, this mutilator of righteousness, this 
walking truncation of humanity bereft of the faintest hint of compassion, of truth, of character, this mere fellow Trump. Well, how's it going to go? And what happens if it goes badly? And I don't even mean if he legitimately wins, because if he legitimately wins, he legitimately wins. It will be a disaster, of course, for his country and for the rest of the world, and one for which the American populace will bear collective responsibility. What I mean is, what happens if he's voted out but won't go? Or what happens, and again, this is his stated intention, if he maintains power through fraud, through force, through various means of voter suppression, what happens then to this mere fellow Trump? Well, I'd rather not think of it. We're going to find out soon enough either way. And as often happens, I've been yammering on for probably longer than I should be. So by way of wrapping up, let's see. Looked at through Confucian eyes, there is no legitimacy in the current regime. It serves the interests of the few, the rich, the white, at the expense of all others. And the current administration is the most corrupt in American history. Even to the point of celebrating its own corruption, Trump flags his intention to steal this election. And not just by accident and not just once. He's speaking about it openly. A friend of mine on Facebook pointed out to me that this is actually him normalizing the process, normalizing the theft of an election, the murder of democracy. So thank you, Layla. I do appreciate that. And his followers are eating it up. It baffles my mind that so many can be so caught up in such a mass celebration of ignorance and cruelty. And were the mandate of heaven an operative concept in our culture, there is no question that Donald Trump and his cultists would have lost it. The gap between rich and poor was already wider than at any time since the 1890s, I believe, when he took office, and it's only gotten wider still. They have not failed to provide sufficient economic support for those devastated by the by the coronavirus, because to fail, they would have had to try. They have simply chosen to let people face a very strong possibility of eviction during the winter. This is how the party in charge treats the people over whose well-being it has responsibility. They have chosen to give their people less than any other developed nation has chosen to give its people, and they are the richest country in the world. So when I speak of a celebration of cruelty and ignorance, I know exactly what I'm talking about. And when I speak of Trump planning to steal the election, he's not even hiding it. And if you're okay with it, I don't even know how to speak to you. So what can you do? What can you Americans do? Well, the obvious one, if you haven't done so, and if you've never done so before, and if you never do so again, vote in this election. And when you vote, go with a large group of people. Be safe. Protect yourselves. There will be thugs there, and they will try to intimidate you. This is not idle speculation. This was done for years and years and years under Jim Crow. And it was specifically for this that Trump ordered his goons to stand down and stand by. And this may well be the most important thing you've ever done. Get that moral monster out of the White House and rejoin the community of nations on which your country has so recently turned its back. We will welcome you back with open arms. But if you choose to continue walking down the path of cozying up to authoritarians, cozying up to dictators, you will be on a very dark road and a road that, whether you know it or not, you don't want to go down. So what else can you do? Resist. When he tries to steal this election, and he will, resist. First, resist with every legal means at your disposal. And if that's not enough, well, the law is not an absolute limit, is it? There is a place for civil disobedience. There is a time for civil disobedience. And 
if this election goes off the way I think it probably will, the coming weeks and months in your country will be the time and place for the most pervasive acts of civil disobedience that anyone in living memory has ever witnessed. If it comes to that, and I'm speaking to you Americans who are not Trumpledites, to you Americans who still have some shred of humanity, know that the world supports you. If not the whole world, the nations with which you have formerly been allied, we're with you. We want you to get through this, and not just for our sake, but for yours. And with that, I think I'm probably done. I hope this hasn't rambled too much. I hope you feel like the last hour or so has been well spent. Thank you for listening. Of course, if you want to reach me, you can always find me at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com or on the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page or at EC Humanist on Twitter. And of course, if you think this is worth listening to, do please feel free to share it. For now, as always, be kind to each other. Mm-hmm.